You're listening to sermon audio from River City Church in Fargo, North Dakota. River City Church exists to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus. You can find out more about River City by visiting our website at www.rivercityfargo.org. Jesus, would you encourage us as we open your word and would you teach us and help us to fix our eyes on you and worship you this morning? I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Good morning. You can have, <clears throat> have a seat. Welcome. I'm glad it's rain today and not snow. That's, that's worth an amen, I think. Um, grab your Bibles. Turn to Luke chapter 20. If you need a Bible, some of our strike team is coming around and can get you one so you can follow along. We're going to close out Luke chapter 20 this morning. And as we do, Jesus kind of turns the tables, if you will, on those who have been questioning him. And Jesus actually asks a question of his own. Before we get into all that, Um, Let's read our text together. It's just seven verses. Luke chapter 20, starting in verse 41, and we'll read till verse 47. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. This is Jesus speaking. But he said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses And for a pretense, make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. This is God's holy word for us this morning. Now, let's get into a little of what's happening here to this point. Starting at the beginning of chapter 20 of Luke, we have this group of People. We have chief priests, we have Pharisees, we have Sadducees, we have some who are favorable to Herod, who was ruler in Judea at the time, Herodians, and we have some scribes. And even though they tend to not like each other and get along, they're all working together here to try to catch Jesus in saying something. That will either do one of two things. It'll either make him look bad before all the people who are just enamored with what Jesus is saying and doing, or get him in trouble with Rome. If they can get him in trouble with the local government, then they can be like, hey, not our problem. Rome can deal with him. In essence, they're they're working together to try to take Jesus down. That's their end goal. And to this point, if you've been following with us in Luke 20, Jesus masterfully and intentionally kind of disarms all their arguments and turns them around on them to the point where at the end of our passage last week, verse, uh, verses 39 and 40 of Luke 20. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, verse 40, for they no longer dared to ask him any questions. They essentially go, okay, that's it, fine, you win, and they kind of back away slowly. And, and Jesus could have just left them at that, right? Like, yeah, you're right, you better keep walking. But he doesn't say that. He doesn't just let them go. He actually goes after them a little bit. He approaches them. He charges 
essentially at them and asks them a question of his own. And Jesus' question, different than their questions, their questions are meant to to trick Jesus, trip him up. They have kind of ulterior motives. Jesus, I think, is pretty clear in his question. He asks them this theological question, this rhetorical question, in order to surface some things, to expose some things in them. And that's what I actually think he's after here. I think Jesus, in asking this question about David, and we'll get into that here in a second, is seeking to expose what is at the heart of the questions that they've been asking him. What's at the heart of their unwillingness to listen to him? What's at the heart of their unwillingness to submit to him, to believe him? I think Jesus is asking this question, and he gives the warning that he gives in verses 45 through 47 in order to expose in their hearts unbelief. He's he's saying to them, essentially, you don't actually believe what you say you believe. He forces in their lack of a response a confession. Their non-confession is in itself a confession. And that's the the heart that Jesus is exposing, the heart of hypocrisy, of, of believing and saying different things. The heart of that is unbelief. And so Jesus offers a clear warning and a compassionate caution to those who have ears to hear. Because hypocrisy, at its root, is unbelief. But there's gospel hope here as well. And that's this, that humility is the antidote to the poison that is hypocrisy. The antidote to this poison that will ultimately kill you, hypocrisy that at its heart is unbelief, the antidote to that is humility. So that's kind of the big idea today. The heart of hypocrisy is unbelief, and humility is the antidote to our hypocrisy. So that's two, there's two main sections here, verses uh, one th- or 41 through 44. Jesus forces, even in their non-response, Jesus forces a confession. What do they truly believe? And then in verses 45 through 47, Jesus issues a warning, a caution. So a confession and a caution. Let's look at the first one. Jesus doesn't actually get the scribes to respond to him, at least according to Luke. Jesus asks a question. He doesn't record any response from them. But the reason I use the word confession is because he's exposing in them what they actually believe. Even in their non-speaking, they're making a confession. Here's essentially the question. Jesus is, is pressing on them. These are religious Hebrews. Jesus is essentially saying, you you all believe that the Messiah, the coming Messiah, the coming Christ, the one who's going to save you, is a son of David. And yet, Jesus says, David calls him Lord or Master. How can David's son be his Lord? That's the question Jesus is asking. And then he quotes from Psalm 110. Now, if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, you may have picked up on this. Our scripture reading two weeks ago was Psalm uh, 8. And uh, Nancy read part of that this morning, Psalm 8, verse 1. And our scripture reading last week was from Psalm 110. And so our scripture reading this morning was the first few verses of Psalm 110. By the way, that's on purpose. Because... As Jesus answers all these questions, starting at the beginning of Luke 20, as Jesus starts asking, answering these questions that are being asked of him, of his authority, about the resurrection, 
And here, as Jesus asks this question back to them about David's son being his Lord, in all this, these last few verses, Jesus is saying something about himself. Jesus is making claims about himself, his role, his position, his authority, who he is. And in Psalm 8 and Psalm 110, we read this similar phrase. It's a language use in the Hebrew that is very intentional. Uh, Luke records the word Lord and Lord as the same word in verse 42. But in the Hebrew, in Psalm 8, this is how it reads. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And in the Hebrew, you have two different words for Lord. You have the all capital version, O Lord. And so when you read capital L-O-R-D in your Bibles, What's being translated to the English for us is the Hebrew word, the name for God, Yahweh. It's the proper name that God revealed to Moses. It's life giver. It's supreme creator, God over all the universe. But there's another word for Lord here. There's another Lord here. The second Lord is the word Adonai in the Hebrew. It means master or ruler and is used in multiple ways. It's used for like a, a, an earthly ruler or master. Essentially, it means one who has authority over me. I don't know if anyone is interested. Of course, you're not. You're Americans. But if anyone was interested in the coronation of King George III at all that happened this last weekend? A little bit. There's a couple of people who are like, yeah, you know, it's cool. Um, it's interesting. That word Lord in the English came up multiple times as people were like commissioning him or commending him towards certain things, calling him Lord or calling him Sovereign. In that way. What they're saying there is not that he is God, but that he is an authority in the commonwealth. And so they submit to him as Lord, L small O R D, if I can say it that way, right? So we have these two words. So Psalm 8 reads like this O Yahweh, our Adonai, O Supreme Creator God, our Master. And in Psalm 110, we read something similar, the verse that Jesus quotes. It reads like this, the Lord says to my Lord, or, or literally, Yahweh says to my Adonai. The creator, God of the universe, says to my master. And Jesus is quoting King David. So, so what's actually going on here? Why is this important? Why is this helpful? Jesus' question Verse 41, how can they say that the Christ, that is the promised Messiah, is David's son? Right? The people of Israel were waiting generations for a Savior, for a Messiah. And this Savior, their Christ, their anointed one of God, was going to come from the line of David. That's what they were hoping for. That's what the scriptures foretold. That's what the prophets said. He would be a descendant of David. So almost everyone in Israel believed that, that their Messiah was going to be a descendant of David, and so they were waiting for this descendant of David to arrive on the scene. And so Jesus asks, how can they say that the Christ is a son or a descendant of David when David himself calls him Lord? Because that just doesn't happen. David is credited with Psalm 110. It's a messianic kind of psalm pointing the way to this promised Messiah. And David says, Yahweh says to my master, 
sit at my right hand. As an aside, seated at the right hand is a sign of authority and power. The one seated at the right hand of the king has full uh, extent, full power and authority of the king. It's a place of honor. Verse 44, Luke writes, Jesus says, David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? A A father, and especially a king, would never call his son master. Honor always goes up the food chain, not the other way around. It would be unheard of for a father to bow before his son or any of his descendants, sons, grandsons, and so on. It just, it doesn't exist. And so Jesus asked this question, how can David call his son or his descendant master? The answer is, in human terms, he can't. He wouldn't because David's descendant can never outrank David. If in some miraculous way, David were to come back to life uh, three or four generations later when his great-great-grandson is sitting on the throne and David were to show up on the scene, immediately David would rank higher than his great-great-great-grandson, if that were possible. David's descendants could never outrank him. That's the idea here, the question Jesus is posing. But remember, Psalm 110 is speaking of not just a human descendant. It's a messianic psalm. And so Jesus, right here in Luke 20, is making a claim about himself. David calls Christ Lord and Master. He's speaking of the future Messiah that Yahweh, God supreme, says to my Master, my Lord, the one who is the promised Messiah, because the Messiah outranks David. That's what David is saying here. I am under the authority of the one who is to come. So even though the Messiah is, according to the flesh, a descendant of David, he is above him and outranks him according to his divine right as the eternal son of God and the promised Messiah. That's what David is getting at here. And this is why I wanted to use the word confession, not just because it starts with C and I can use it with caution, why I wanted to use the word confession here, although it does help me remember. It's a confession from silence. It is acknowledging, it's surfacing what these scribes refuse to admit. They refuse. Jesus is saying, you are more than willing, in fact, you're looking forward to a savior who's the son of David, but you refuse to believe that your savior is a son of God. You refuse. You don't deny the miracles. I mean, you can't really, they're happening in front of you. You argue with, but you can't deny the wisdom, the interpretation of the scriptures, the the authority with which Jesus is teaching. But you can't bring yourselves to making the confession that your Savior, the one in front of you, is indeed the Son of God. You want the Christ to come and save you, but you refuse to actually bow a knee before him. Remember, it was these same group of men who said, we do not want this man to rule over us. You've made your confession. You don't actually believe. 
So Jesus uses this kind of rhetorical, theological question about David and his son to expose, to surface, unbelief. You don't believe what you say you believe. And that's the heart of it. I don't think they they hate Jesus because he hangs out with tax collectors and prostitutes. I don't think that's why they hate him. I don't think they hate him because he doesn't follow all of the additional, you know, rites and rituals of cleanliness before meals and all these sorts of things that the Pharisees were really big on. I don't think they hate him really because of that. I don't think they really hate Jesus because he teaches with boldness and authority or because he heals the sick and the blind. They hate Jesus because they refuse to bow to him. They refuse to submit to him as master, as Adonai. They're okay with a God who's far off, but when he comes near, I don't like that now. So they have one of two options when God comes near to them. They can either fall at his feet in humility and embrace him as so many do in the gospels, or they can push back on him, and instead of embracing him, embrace themselves a little tighter. That's, I think, what's happening here. That's the confession they're making when they reject Jesus. Their non-confession is saying something. Peter, the one who famously, all through the gospel, seems to put his foot in his mouth, speaking at the wrong time, Peter, in Matthew 16, Jesus asks him, who do you say that I am? Peter makes a wonderful confession. Peter says, you are the Christ, the promised one of God coming to save us, the son of the living God, Peter says. Martha, when Lazarus has died and she runs out to meet Jesus in agony and maybe some anger, Jesus asks her, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? And Martha says, yes, Lord, I believe that you're the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. You're the Christ, the promised one come to save us, Son of God. Peter and Martha are making a confession of belief that Jesus is who he claims to be. The scribes and the priests and others who refuse to join David, which is what David is doing, David in Psalm 110 is calling Jesus his master. And these men who probably know Psalm 110 better than anyone else in the crowd refuse. They're making a confession of unbelief. So Jesus kind of draws this line in the sand. There's not neutral ground here, Jesus is saying. Who's master, you or me? Which leads to a pretty uncomfortable wrestle as I'm working through the text this week. Because I'm in the crowds too, right? What confession are we making? Who's master of our lives? Are are we okay with with the Jesus who loves the unlovable? We're okay with the Jesus who who cares for the outcasts and the sinner, but we're not okay with the Jesus who also commands our worship, who commands our allegiance. Maybe we're okay with the Jesus who says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest for your souls. And we go, yes. But we are uncomfortable. We're not okay with the Jesus who says, if anyone would come after me, if you want to follow me, Well, you've got to deny yourself and take up your cross daily. It's not a pick and choose, right? It's It's a both hand. Jesus, in his mercy, loves the unlovable. 
and rescues the broken and gives rest for the weary, amen? And in the power of his grace, calls and empowers us to worship him and follow him. What confession are we making? And this is where Jesus kind of closes down this direct confrontation with these who are kind of seeking to trap him. He kind of closes the loop here. Luke tells us Jesus turns to his disciples, verse 45, and speaking so that everyone else could hear clearly everything he was saying. I don't want you to miss that. Jesus speaks with clarity and apparently volume so that everyone, including the scribes who are still like, and we're out, including them, can hear exactly what he was saying. And here's where we find ourselves amongst the crowd hearing what Jesus is saying. And then he offers a caution, a warning. And that's the second part of our text this morning, starting in verse 45. He says, beware of the scribes. Now, we're all familiar with warning signs of various kinds. You go drive in Colorado or Montana or a place with actual mountains, danger falling rocks. Like when you see those signs, you're like, oh, hey, mountains. I forgot those existed. I live here, right? Right, you see other warning signs, caution labels on tools or heavy machinery. Like don't lose a finger, don't burn your hand, right? I'm, I'm a big fan of the slow children sign that's in neighborhoods. Like, is, am I supposed to go slow? Are the, do the children move slow? What's the, what's the warning here? Just kidding. I know what it's for. It's I need to pay attention and drive safer. That's the idea, right? We, we, we know we have, we're familiar with warning signs. It's as if Jesus is holding up a big warning sign here saying this, beware hypocrisy. Because that's what he's calling out in the scribes is hypocrisy. That's the caution. That's the sign. Beware Hypocrisy. And then Jesus kind of unpacks, here's how this particular hypocrisy shows itself in these scribes. Here's the danger, he says. The scribes, Jesus says, like to walk around in long robes. They like to, to look the part of it being important. If you were a, a standard daily worker, you work a field, you work with livestock, you work on a potter's wheel, maybe you work baking bread, you wouldn't have big, long, flowing robes while you did that work. That's low-level work. You'd need to roll up your sleeves. In fact, that's like OSHA violations, like crazy. You're going to get your long sleeve or your tassel caught in something or get trampled or just you wouldn't do that. Those who wore long robes were too prominent, too important, couldn't be bothered to dirty their hands, and so they like to walk around in these long, flowing, elaborate robes as a way to show how important they are. And Jesus is highlighting they like to look the part of being important. They just want everyone to know how influential and important they are. He continues, they like to walk around in long robes. They love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the places of honor at feasts. They like being seen as important, but they love being acknowledged as important. Greetings in the market, places of honor when they showed up to synagogue, sitting in the front to be the first ones called upon. Teacher, what do you think of the interpretation of this passage? Well, I'm glad you asked, right? Being seen as influential by being the honored guest at a party, like, hey, we got the guy we were hoping for to kind of 
be the guy for our party. Now everyone's going to want to come. They weren't only seen as influential, but they were actually influential. That's what these, these honors in public kind of did for them. They love the attention and the prominence. Jesus says they, they love it. And simply Jesus is pointing out their self-importance, their pride. I think I, I used a definition of pride last week or the week before. Uh, pride is an unholy obsession with self. And we can clearly see this in our own day and age, right? Our culture that we live in thrives. It thrives on an obsession with self. Right? We make up words like selfie, which is what? It's a picture of yourself. It's like, look how awesome the Grand Canyon is, and look how cool it would be if I was in the picture. Right? I know some of that is like we're just trying to capture everyone. You just want to remember you were there, but it's called a selfie for a reason. Right? Or, or this one. There's a title that people put on their social media profiles. It's a descriptor. You've seen it. The word influencer. I love that. Someone's getting interviewed for something and they're like labeled as an influencer. And I'm always like, says who? Did you just name yourself that? Who follows that guy? I just always think that's hilarious. But what's funnier is that this isn't a, just a modern phenomenon. It's not unique to us in this age, although maybe it's prominent and far-reaching because of how we have technology and the way we use it. But Jesus is essentially calling out the self-titled influencers of his day. Y'all think you're really important. And you want everyone to know just how important you are. You love it. You love the attention. You love the prominence. You love how you look and the influence you can have. Beware, Jesus says, of self-obsession. Beware thinking of yourselves more highly than you ought. Than you ought. He essentially says, careful, your pride is showing. And he continues, beware the scribes who like long robes and love places of honor, who devour widows' houses. That word devour in the English isn't just to consume, it's to totally consume. Think of teenage boy in the house at mealtime. No judgment. My 14-year-old over here is like, what? I don't blame him for that. He's growing, right? I don't shame him. He's like, I'm hungry. I'm like, eat. Just eat. There's no shame in that, right? But that's the idea. Total consume, totally consume. That's the, the picture. This is what Jesus says these scribes do to some of the most vulnerable people in his own culture. In their context, would be a widow. And Jesus is like, you just take advantage of their need and you just devour whatever it is they have. At the time, scribes would be kind of equivalent with lawyers. They were experts in the law, so they'd be sought after to maybe help settle disputes, but also, in the case of a widow, would be someone who would come alongside someone in need and help them manage when their husband died or they didn't have family who could care for them, would help them manage whatever it is they had, their household, their estate, their lives, to care for them. And it should be a, a service of, of, of generosity, Right? But instead, what would often happen is that some of these scribes would take advantage of the generosity of these widows in their time of need. He would, they would use their situation and the expectation that they'd be generous and level essentially debts against them and their estate or their whatever they had. And then when the widow couldn't pay those debts, the scribe then would then take their property as payment 
or they would help manage, and I use that with air quotes, they would help manage whatever their resources were so that they would benefit the scribe. It's like insider trading. I'm gonna help invest your resources in such a way that I get paid even if it costs you, right? In Luke 16, we're reminded that these scribes and Pharisees were called lovers of money. And in Luke 11, Jesus says, you scribes and Pharisees, you're full of robbery. He's he's calling them out on their greed. You say one thing, you show on the outside generosity and servanthood, and yet you devour those who are most needy among you. The end of verse 47, he closes, and for a pretense, they make long prayers. A pretense is an excuse, it's a reason. In this case, Jesus is saying, you guys make long, elaborate, spiritual prayers to prove to everyone else just how righteous and spiritual you are. You wear your long, elaborate prayers as a cloak of righteousness to cover you, but inside is wickedness and awfulness and just bad. It's a pretense. Now, the problem isn't necessarily the length of the prayers. It's not the short prayer versus a long prayer. I've prayed some long prayers. Some of you are like, yes, yes, you have. You know, there's a crying kid and I have to go to the bathroom and why are you still talking, right? The problem isn't the length of the prayers. The problem is the heart underneath where for a pretense, as a facade, they pray long prayers. They're covering up what's really going on in their hearts under the surface. Now, if you really want to dig into this, Luke only gives us a few verses, a few lines of challenge. In Matthew 23, Matthew unpacks an entire chapter of Jesus going hard after these scribes. Let me just give you a portion of it, a few verses from Matthew 23. Jesus says this, Woe to you, which is a declaration of judgment. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, he calls them. For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, then the outside may also be clean. Jesus continues, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, pretense, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You are fake, Jesus is saying. The outside does not match the inside. Your actions betray your words. And so Jesus levels a judgment at the end of Luke 20, verse 47. He says, they will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus didn't start this fight, but he's going to finish it. Beware men like these Pharisees and scribes because they are going to receive a harsher judgment. Now, there's a little theological truth I want to nail down here. All sin, big or small, is worthy of God's strictest judgment. There's not one sin that gets a free pass. I think it's Pastor Joel Beakey who says there are no small sins because God is not a small God or something along those lines. 
R.C. Sproul says, all sin is cosmic treason. All of it is worthy of God's judgment. I just want to be clear on that. There's not like, well, this one's not as bad, so we get a pass. No, no. All sin fully condemnable. And Jesus says this, there's a sin which brings about a more severe judgment. And what he's pointing at here is the reality of knowing what is true and disregarding it. It's one thing to be ignorant. I can honestly not know the speed limit of a road I'm on and I can get pulled over and the cop can say, how fast were you going? Do you know why I pulled you over? And I can be like, I have no, I don't no idea what the speed limit is on this road. And he still is going to say, that's no excuse. It's still a 35. You were still going 50. Here's your ticket. Right? Ignorance is not a defense when it comes to the law. But how much worse if I know what the rule is, I know what the speed limit is, and I say, I don't really care. Even in a human court of law, negligence is bad. Intention matters. If I know better and I still do it, the judgment, even in a human court of law, is going to be worse than if I did it on accident, right? Hebrews 10 says this. The writer of Hebrews says, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? Intentionally trampled underfoot, has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. Jesus is saying, beware the path of the hypocrite, because knowing and ignoring is more dangerous for your soul than not knowing at all. And you teachers of the law, you Pharisees, you priests, you scribes, you have God's revelation to you. You have Moses and the prophets. You have all the promises and the covenant relationship from Abraham onward. You have a line of David and a history of, of, of what a godly kingdom could possibly look like. In fact, even in your exile, God has been kind to preserve a remnant from among you and to plant you again in his place so that you might flourish again even after you've sinned, even after you've been redeemed. And here, now, in this time, Jesus is saying, God in his kindness has sent me to you and I'm standing in front of you as a kindness of the Father and you're saying, no thanks, Beware hypocrisy, Jesus says, because it actually exposes what you truly believe. So for those who are standing here around, remember, Jesus is speaking so that everybody can hear. They're just watching Jesus dismantle these scribes right before their eyes. There was probably a mix of awe, like that was awesome to see happen just now, and what did he just say and what does that mean for me? Self-reflection. I think it's okay for us to have both awe of Jesus in this moment and a sense of like, what do I do with this? Maybe that's our posture today as well. Right? We're in the crowd. We're standing in the outskirts hearing Jesus speak to us as well. And he's saying the problem at the heart is unbelief. I know a lot of people have been hurt by others a lot of people, their, their rub against religion or church or Christians is like, man, those guys are hypocrites. Let me just say, that's true. It's not if we're hypocrites. The question is, where is our hypocrisy? That's the question. 
That's what Jesus is pointing at. Because none of us has yet been made perfect. There is in our spiritual growth, in our sanctification, which is our maturing, that by God's grace we look more like Jesus tomorrow than we did today. As the Holy Spirit is working in us, the hypocrisy that resides within, the remnants of the old that are still, the old nature that are still there, by God's grace, kind of get forced to the surface, right? You can't spend time with another person very long. Anyone who's married knows this. If you spend time in a community group long enough, you know this, or even a college roommate. Like, you can't keep all that hidden forever. It starts to leak out. It, and that's the beauty of hypocrisy and God's grace to us, is that when it surfaces and it is exposed to the light of truth, it dies because it only lives in the dark. It's like a shadow, our hypocrisy. It's elusive, but we can only see it in relationship to the light. You don't see shadows in the dark. And so Jesus here is saying, as he's exposing the unbelief of these scribes, and he's giving a caution to anyone who would listen to him, of essentially this. In receiving Jesus as the light, you're opening yourself up to expose, bring all that hypocrisy to the surface, that it is exposed and it dies. Matthew chapter four speaks of Jesus, or speaks of God's people as those who were dwelling in darkness have now seen a great light at the entrance of Jesus. Jesus came as a light to a dark place. Luke 11, Jesus says, your eye is a lamp. And when your eye is healthy, light gets in and lights up all of you. But when it's bad, when your eye is bad, your body is full of darkness. The idea here is that light exposure drives out darkness. Romans chapter 13, Paul writes, For the night is far gone. The day is at hand. It is here. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. He later writes in Ephesians, For at one time you were darkness, Paul writes, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And just a few verses later, verse 11, he says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Here's what's happening here. Jesus' caution is both a condemnation, a judgment for those who refuse to believe, but for those who do not refuse. Jesus is extending compassion here. Beware. Beware is a serious condemnation for unbelief and a compassionate call for those who have ears to hear to believe. And you might hear this this morning and be like, man, Jake, that's kind of a, a heavy one because I'm, I'm a hypocrite too. Is there hope for me? Can I just say, absolutely. Welcome to the club. Yes. See, that's the beautiful truth of the gospel that we hope in. The foundation of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. The gospel tells us that Jesus himself entered into our darkness. He humbled himself, Paul writes in Philippians. He humbled himself. He condescended, came from glory to the creation and put himself in the creation that he spoke into existence by his own mouth. 
that he wrapped himself, uh, is the New Testament language, wrapped himself in human flesh. That is, he took on himself a human nature and in that human nature took on all the limitations of that nature according to the flesh, according to his humanity. Further, he humbled himself to being mocked and shamed and beaten and hung on a tree naked and ashamed. He was put into the ground after death, only then to rise again in glorious life. And our gospel reminds us that Jesus now is seated, where? At the right hand of the Father, full of grace and truth, right? Jesus humbled himself, and we are invited into his humility. And it hinges on this confession that Jesus, you are my Adonai. You are my master. So if you're here this morning, and that's not been your confession, Jesus is not the master of your life. Let me just offer you the caution that Jesus offers. Because we are no longer ignorant of who Jesus says you are and who Jesus claims that he is. He claims to be son of man and son of God. He, he is saying, I'm, I'm, I'm worthy of your allegiance. I'm worthy of your worship. And he's inviting you to surrender your pride and to embrace him as the one who can not only save you from your sin, but is Lord of every moment, every inch of your life. And brothers and sisters, you like, who, like me, are recovering hypocrites, When we cover our sin, when we hide in our hypocrisy, which we are prone to do, we're saying one of two things. We're either saying, I don't actually believe that I need to be rescued from this thing, or we are saying, I don't actually believe that I can be. And both of those are lies. Because Christ Jesus says we are no longer condemned. In 1 John, John writes, says this, he said, let us walk in the light as he is in the light so that we might have fellowship with God, that's relationship, and with one another. That if we confess our sins, we make confession that he is both Savior and Lord. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the challenge is it takes courage to confess. It takes humility to confess. But the antidote to hypocrisy and the guard against that pull, that drift into unbelief that we don't need him or we are too far gone, that pull away from that, the antidote to that is humility. It's surrender. And this is our gospel hope, that you and I don't have to hide in our hypocrisy anymore. We don't make and we don't maintain a temporary glory or righteousness for ourselves. It's Jesus, the glorious one who humbled himself and invites us to humble ourselves, submit to him, and in so doing, we share in his humility and we share in his glory. Jesus is our Lord 
and Lord. <laughs> Jesus is our creator and our master. My prayer for myself and for us as we consider and wrestle with a pretty direct passage here from Jesus is that we would be marked by him, that we would be marked by his rule as master in our lives, that we would be marked as a people who are both hopeful and humble, and that this would be a display, not of our own righteousness, but a display of God's remarkable kindness and goodness in Jesus. Amen? Let's pray.